I'm Amber Rivas, and I beat the often path by becoming a leader in the nonprofit sector in Los Angeles County, where we're making a difference in the lives of thousands and thousands of young people, children, youth, and families across the county. Amber Rivas is the president and CEO of Aviva Family and Children's Services in Los Angeles, a nonprofit that has existed for over 100 years. She's dedicated her entire life to solving the complex housing issues facing major metropolitan areas like Los Angeles. Amber has worked for nonprofits her entire career, helping women, children, and local communities with mental health and crisis intervention, foster care, and so much more. Now, she's engaged with the most vulnerable parts of society tackling issues head on that most of us choose to ignore. Today, we'll learn how her selfless journey has brought her satisfaction, joy, and a connection to her community in ways that are so, so powerful. She's proof that while judgment is easy, doing something about it is far more rewarding and noble. So here's Amber Rivas, I'm Ross Palmer, and this is Beat the Often Path. Well, welcome to the show, Amber. Thank you so uh, much for having me, Ross. I know that there's a question that I have and that other people who are listening to this are going to want to know. And this is we're, we're going to start out on a serious note here. Okay. When are you going to get serious with your life and career and do something <laughs> meaningful for once? I feel like I'm still on the runway, you know? <laughs> I mean, isn't it time? Isn't it time? Uh, not yet, you know. Not. <laughs> okay. okay. I got you a know, few more years of, of fun left in me, I think. Yeah, you're just just playing around. No, nothing serious <laughs> about what you do, and it's not like you're committed to any of these ideals. No, for not not really at all. Coming no, up on I'm a couple decades, a so yeah, I can sense that. <laughs> I feel that foundering energy. Um, all right, so you are coming to us from Hollywood, where I used to live. You're slightly more on the west side. I was slightly more on the east side. We are just talking before we began filming about what an interesting place Hollywood is in general. For it those is. who don't know, who have not lived there, it's probably not quite what you might expect it to be. Uh, in many good and not-so-good ways. So first, where do we jump into your story? I mean, you have been doing this for quite a while. You've recently taken on a new position at the organization of Aviva. So let's get an overview. Where do you think we should begin here? Oh, gosh. I mean, so in December of 1983, I came, you know, running into the world. Uh, <laughs> no, but seriously, I uh, I joined this fantastic organization, Aviva uh, Family and Children's Services, back in January of this year. Yeah. Uh, I've been saying for the past nine months that I'm new. I'm not how I'm not sure how much longer I can say that. Um, but this organization is not new. Uh, Aviva has been around for 108 years. Um, and I can get a little bit into Aviva's story in a bit. But prior to coming over to Aviva, I spent 17 years at St. Anne's Family Services, also located in Los Angeles. Um, and I actually started there right out of college. In fact, I interviewed during my finals week um, and started a week after. Um, and I, I, I think that's really where I found my footing and my passion for the work that we do, the work that we do in support of the most vulnerable and, and disenfranchised in Los Angeles County. Um, I started off as a childcare worker in the group home over at St. Anne's. And so I was working directly with the teens in the group home and, you know, taking them to school and taking them to their medical appointments and sitting with them. Um, and just hearing their stories. And it really opened my eyes to, to the need of, of this community and the importance of intervening early, the importance of really starting when, when kids are young and, and 
there's so much opportunity for us to support them and help them find their way uh, and really stay hopeful. So I think that, you know, the 17 years that I spent in that organization, I was, of course, able to kind of, you know, ascend through the ranks and continue to find my passion in not just serving the community, but also supporting team members, building teams, helping others find their way, find their passion so that they can do that really important work with with the families and the, and the kiddos that we serve. Well, I think I speak for everybody who lives in a different part of the country. What do we know about people from California? They're all scam artists. They're all shysters. They're all sleazy. They're all up to something. So how are you ruining America? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> in what way, specifically? Maybe uh, I don't recycle enough. Because I, <laughs> <laughs> I know intuitively... <laughs> I know that you're up to no good, <laughs> so I'm gonna t- I'm gonna tease it out in the rest of this interview, and so okay. just just you know we're on to you. Um, okay, so there are many issues, obviously, uh, and you've become intimately familiar. So what are the issues? I guess we can get a little bit into Aviva, the organization, perhaps. Sure. Um, what have they been doing, and what are some of the issues that they're solving today? Oh my goodness. So this organization, like I said, has been around for 108 years. It was actually originally founded as the Hamburger Home uh, by the Hamburger family. The Hamburger family owned the largest department store in Los Angeles over 100 years ago. I'm going to um, try not to make a joke about this. I'm just going <laughs> to let this ride. So fine. The Hamburger family. Yes. Just sit um, back. Buckle up. Moving okay, on. Right. Moving on. Yeah. So, and this incredible family actually started this organization to provide residential services to single Jewish women in Los Angeles, single Jewish women that were just looking to get back on their feet. So we provided residential services and also services to help them kind of figure out what what kind of career choices they wanted to make in life. Um, Over the years, uh, we were able to acquire this beautiful facility located right on Hollywood Boulevard, just a couple of blocks uh, that way. Um, It's our famous pink home. And that is where our residential services eventually transitioned to group home care for uh, teenage girls in the foster care system and juvenile justice system. Um, from there, our services just continue to grow and expand. We now offer mental health services countywide all throughout Los Angeles County, um, including intensive mental health services. Uh, we also have a, a foster family agency. We provide FFA services where we recruit, train, and certify resource parents, what formerly known as foster families, to take in uh, young people that are in the foster care system. Um, and then of course we continue to offer uh, housing services. We've converted our, our, our big pink home into an interim supportive housing program for homeless women and their children. We can serve up to 36 families every single night. We provide them with three nutritious meals a day, 365 days a year. We provide them with mental health services, workforce development services, enrichment activities, arts and crafts, yoga, dance, resume building, interviewing skills, um, case management. And we, we provide the full gamut of support to these young, these women that are coming to us, many of them directly from the streets. So when you ask about what is Aviva doing in Hollywood, what are we doing in our community? When you think about Hollywood, you think about entertainment, right? You think about movies, you think about film, you think about actors and actresses. Um, When you come to Hollywood, you can't help but notice that there is a pervasive issue with the unhoused population and really is is countywide. But specifically in Hollywood, um, there certainly has been an increase, especially uh, in the aftermath of the pandemic. Um, So Aviva is playing a critical role in that. We are we are 
we are up close and, and personal and have pivoted and evolved our services to address the immediate needs that are in this community. Uh, well, I experienced that firsthand because, like I was saying, I live in East Hollywood, and uh, you noticed that it was very symbolic. Before the pandemic, a lot of new shops were coming in in my neighborhood, and I, I, I lived in a very interesting neighborhood that has a lot of history, and it, was it going up or was it going down? It wasn't so easy to, to tell which direction it was heading. Uh, but new stores were coming in, a bakery was coming in, there was a gym, all of this stuff. Pandemic happened. All of that got shut down. Yep. Then suddenly all these buildings that were going to become really nice parts of the community were vacant. And uh, there was always a small homeless, or sorry, unhoused, I should say, let me get my language right, encampment very near to me. But I watched the way that that grew and the way that that dynamic completely changed in the year and two years that followed uh, from the beginning of the pandemic. And so it is true that you really can't live in or near the Hollywood area or in LA County without being aware that, yes, there is a massive issue here. That's right. And I think some people are aware of that issue, but of course people have very, very, very different beliefs as to how to solve the issue like that. I know where I stand. I'm pretty sure I know where you stand on this. Yeah. But what do you think the answer is in general terms to alleviate? You know, I don't I don't think that there's a magic bullet, right? I think that the the solution to the problem is collaboration. It's partnering with different organizations and um, officials that are doing something very specific in terms of addressing the issue. And it's also around prevention, right? Like how do we ensure that we build an infrastructure that can prevent young people, that can prevent families from ending up on the streets? Um, and so I think it really is a collaborative uh, a collaborative issue. It's a collaborative answer. Um, and it's really meeting each and every individual and family exactly where they're at. Sometimes they just need, you know, a. a a partner. They just need someone to talk to. They just need someone to process, you know, what's going on for them. And so it, it, it's, again, it's not a one answer, uh, a one word answer. It's something where we all have to kind of take a step back and go, okay, how can we, how can we work together to solve this problem? Um, it's making sure that we have robust substance use disorder uh, services available that aren't, you know, super difficult to access. You know, the red tape around accessing some of the services that are out there can can be really problematic and create a, a massive barrier for many of our, our young people and our families to get the services and the, and the help that they need. Um, sometimes it's just, I need some reprieve. I need a couple of weeks. I don't need something long-term. I need just a couple of weeks to, to get on my feet and figure things out. And some do need more long-term support. So again, it's we have to create a spectrum of services and a spectrum of support that no matter where you are, you there's something for you and it's easy to access. So how can we get access out there? And a lot of that has to do with outreach. Um, not everyone has access to the internet like you and I, Ross, right? So sometimes it means we got to pound the pavement and walk the streets and and get to know folks and build those relationships. Um, and in addition to collaboration, I, I, will, I will also say the ability to form connection with one another. I think that's that's incredibly important. In the 18 years that I've been in this business, the one thing that I've taken away from it is the importance of the ability to connect with one another. Um, we are all seeking community. We are all seeking a sense of belonging. And I think that's one of the reasons why the pandemic was so incredibly difficult for us, right? It's We were all missing that community. We were missing each other. 
it's great that now, you know, one of the of the bright spots, silver lining is that now we can connect virtually. We don't necessarily have to be in the same town or same city or even the same state or country. We can connect with one another virtually, but that's not the same thing as being in person and shaking someone's hand and giving a hug and looking someone in the eye and telling them that I care about you. Right. So no. creating an opportunity for community is just so incredibly important. Well, I, I personally believe if you've heard the saying that your net worth is determined by the five closest people to you. So I take that to the extreme. I literally only form community with people who can help me in a monetary sense. So I only <laughs> ever look upwards. I refuse to associate with anybody who can't immediately financially benefit me because that's what Instagram has told me I need to do. Right. I need to look up. What's the ROI on this friendship? Yes. What is the ROI? So the other thing is, okay, community, sure, all well and good, but how am I going to cast aside an entire group of people if I think of them as human beings? Because it's much, much easier if I just don't, right? Of course. It's simpler. Um, but you know, one of those things these days, I don't know, we talked about the internet, you're on social media, but obviously people like to, there's this disturbing trend and California is looked at in a very negative way by a lot of people, obviously. And also San Francisco and the break-ins right. and people are sharing right. these videos getting really popular. Oh, they've decriminalized crime and people are stealing nine. It's, it's free. There's this really pernicious uh, rhetoric that's going around about California and borderline, it's a failed state. And look at the, uh, why, look at how bad these policies are. And this is an example of what we don't want. Why do you feel that these problems exist in cities such as Los Angeles, San Francisco? What do you think the reason that we're here and dealing with this is? And do you think that people have gotten that reason wrong? elsewhere? You know, that is such a loaded question, Ross. And I think the answer, as as with the last question, is, is rather complex. I think that lawmakers and advocates see that so many folks that have ended up in the, in the juvenile justice system, in the probation system, um, that have had contact with law enforcement, they're just folks that are trying to survive. They're just trying to get by. You know, folks that are, you know, that end up spending, you know, weeks, months, years in jail because they were just trying to make ends meet for their family. Um, so I think that the intention is to create an infrastructure to, to create laws that don't permanently penalize and inflict permanent harm on these individuals and families where they can never recover. Right. Yeah. And yes. I think that what we have also seen is the ability to evolve, right? You know, we've implemented, like, let's try something new. Let's, let's take a look and see if we loosen things up and make it less impactful on the trajectory of an individual's life, you know, that they're able to kind of recover and um, create a thriving uh, lifestyle for themselves where they can really survive, not just survive, but thrive. And, you know, I think it's like, it's what they say, the pendulum, right? The pendulum swings all the way to the right. And then when we shift things up, it swings all the way to the left. And so I imagine what we're going to see, Ross, is some recalibrating. Okay, so we tried this and now it's gotten us here. Let's recalibrate and see if we can sh kind of shift things up. Um, but I think that the perception is that, you know, California is just, you know, we love crime. <laughs> 
And yeah, we love it. And we love crime. We, and we enjoy it. There and should be no consequences, yes, right? There right, should be no yes. consequences for our actions. And that's simply not the case. It's not about not wanting consequences or to create a society where we're just riddled with crime and poverty. It's it's actually quite the opposite, right? It's quite the opposite. We want to make sure that everyone has um, a sense of self-worth, a sense of well-being, and that one mistake does not define you, right? One mistake does not define you, that you have the ability to, to um, make something of yourself, even if you might have, you know, made an error once or twice in your life, that that does not define you as a human being. Um, and I think also is that the research also shows that spending time in prison and in, in, um, in jail does not necessarily do us a whole lot of good either, right? So what is the answer? I guess I would ask those that are not living in California, you know, how is that working out as well, right? I, I don't think there's anyone that necessarily Punish has it right. Throw them all in jail, yeah, uh, just... I mean, it's usually some kind of draconian military tactic that I think is proposed, right? Just, just right. you know, be more tough on crime. But of course, and, and this is the way that the way we frame these discussions matters, I think, because right. on an individual level, pretty much anywhere in the country, especially in a high cost of living area, people are aware of these terms, high COL, low COL area, high cost of living. People are aware that themselves and maybe their partner, they're increasingly struggling to make ends meet. Even people who are very anti-California will acknowledge in another thread that things are expensive, daycare is expensive, housing prices are going up. When will my generation be ever, ever be able to afford a house? Right. Uh, I can right. barely afford an apartment. I have two, three jobs and I can barely get by. So right. very few people from what I've seen connect that things are difficult even for themselves with this other issue. It's if right. it's always if I can get two, three jobs and if I'm able to make it work, despite the fact that I think that housing is primarily unfair, then literally every other person should as well. And if they don't, it's 100 percent their fault. Yes. Not taking into account the circumstances in which somebody was born, the circumstances in which they were raised, whether they had any kind of financial support or parents available or any of these other things. And the thought that I personally have had, I, I'm a business owner, a small business owner. I think I've you know, had very many privileges growing up in my life, but the thought that I've had is... I have had difficulty in getting clients. I have had difficulty in growing my business. Sure. I have no reason not to succeed. And if surviving in Los Angeles is hard for me, and if it's hard for my friends who also have an advantaged and privileged background, how hard must it be for somebody who doesn't have all of those advantages? And we could be talking about mental disabilities, physical disabilities, or right. just having some kind of uh, environmental disability, if we can call it that. So the idea that we're all 100% equal and that if I'm able to do it, so should literally every single other human being, and I'm going to look down on all of them, that's a, a way of framing this problem that I've always disagreed with. Yeah, I, I would completely agree with you. And, you know, on that same thread, you know, you're speaking about equity. Um, and going back to a previous uh, the previous answer that I'd given you, you know, why California is doing this, doing things the way that we're doing it here, right? I think it is to create a sense of equity, right? We understand that not everyone ha is coming from the same background, has the same leg up, 
Um, you know, I grew up in a suburban town in uh, Orange County, um, and I was fortunate enough to recognize my privilege very, very early on. Um, and I recognize my privilege. I understand how I'm showing up today. You know, I have white skin. I have blonde hair. Um, I, I understand my privilege. But even as a child, I understood my privilege. Um, my uh, grandmother lived in a, a rough town in East Los Angeles growing up. And so we would visit her um, fairly frequently. And it is very different. It was very different there than it was in in uh, Anaheim Hills, California. Yeah, sure. And the and my thought when I whenever we would visit is, you know, wow, like why is there such a like why is there such a difference in the quality of essentially everything from the roads to you know the markets, the the types of foods that were for sale on the market, um, what my grandmother had access to. Um, so I think that having that exposure to different walks of life, different communities that have different levels of access and resources very early on helped me recognize my own privilege. Um, and essentially, I think that that somewhat has led me into the field that I'm in today. So I think going back to exposure, but also connection right? It's easy to, to disregard and dismiss an entire population if you have no connection to them, right? Yes. So for me, you know, we had this beautiful event yesterday where we had one of our former clients who, after, who actually happened to also be named Amber tell her story. And she had come to our housing program. She, had, she was homeless. Uh, she was pregnant. And she had no support. She didn't have a single adult in her life that could provide her with the support and resources that she, need, she needed. And her story of trials and tribulation and barrier after barrier, and she can she soldiered on. You know, she she persisted and she prevailed. And just seeing everyone's reaction to that story, it was one person, it was one story, but that connection brought it all brought it all home, right? It's like, okay, this is why we need to support organizations like Aviva. This is why we need to spend time hearing these kinds of stories because it reminds it reminds us or sometimes just pulls the curtain back. So I know that these are the kinds of things that are actually happening right here in my own community. And I can actually be a part of the solution. I can help. Yeah. Well that's such a wonderful thought. And Talking about Instagram platitudes, something that I've also, it's the, it's the nuance of these things, because a lot of people say practice gratitude, from Goop to Gwyneth Paltrow, people say gratitude, 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 and I think that's true. We should definitely be much more grateful for what we have. There's nothing wrong with that, especially considering the context of ourselves within an 8 billion person social structure across the globe. Gratitude, absolutely. But gratitude on its own sort of absolves you of any responsibility. You say, I am grateful. <laughs> Boy, I'm so grateful. Gosh, aren't I grateful? I'm so lucky, aren't I? End of discussion. I'm just grateful. Is, is that the end, though? Or is part of truly recognizing your gratitude <laughs> recognizing that you have advantages? And is it not the human thing to do to say, given that I'm in a position to give back? Should I? And what might that look like? I, you know, I got to say, I'm a big believer in practicing gratitude just 
just sometimes when you're having those tough moments, you're in, you're might be in a dark space practicing gratitude. While might well it might be difficult in that moment, I do believe that that's a really wonderful strategy for for all of us, no matter where we are. Right? We might we might just you know be having a tough day, or we might be in the middle of a crisis, and taking even 30 seconds to go, hey, this I'm really grateful for this right now. I'm really grateful that uh, all my bills are paid, or I'm really grateful that I woke up this morning. I'm really grateful that I was able to go for a walk in my community. Um, so I do think that gratitude is really important. Um, I also think it's important that we feel like we're part of something bigger than ourselves. Um, and that could look different for everybody. It might just, it might be, you know, belonging to a community uh, where you're able to get together on a weekly basis and just kind of support one another in, in conversation um, and to connect. Um, but I think that giving back and get, being charitable, sometimes just with your time, uh, can be so in, so incredibly meaningful. And I think it's something that we don't talk about enough, um, is just how fulfilling and powerful it can be to lend a helping hand. Um, even if it's just donating, you know, some of your your used goods, right? That it, it can feel really good inside, right? But so I, I'm not gonna knock uh, goop. I think that practicing <laughs> gratitude, <laughs> I can get behind it. Oh no, <laughs> I can get behind uh, Gwyneth. I yes. think practicing gratitude no, is actually it, it, a really it comes from a good place. Yeah, I believe does. that it comes it from a good place. So yes, I'm not trying to malign. Um, but yeah, I think that, that's that's all. That's all very true. Um, and human connection, that's something that I've come to believe in my own life, that human connection really is the greatest single thing. And that's why I do stuff like this. Um, just connecting with human, that is the best part of it this is. experience, in my opinion. Um, and, and that's why it's important that all of us seek out more meaningful human connections, whatever that may mean. Because I completely agree that for a while we had none of it. And we saw how lonely and bad that was. And now we still, in some ways, we live in a digital desert sometimes with remote work. And, you know, we, we, we still miss some of that. But I think we've all seen how important human connection is and genuinely connecting with people to our happiness and well-being. This podcast is brought to you by my digital agency, Aloha. That's A-L-O-A, -A, digital agency, a digital marketing agency that helps brands and nonprofits on a mission tell their story. We do website prototyping, design, UI, UX, SEO, CRO, content, 3D design and video, animation, industrial design, content management, learning management systems, and our roots are in e-commerce, managing and building extensive catalogs with hundreds or even thousands of products. In short, we do everything that brands need to grow their digital presence with simple transparency monthly pricing that you can build a la carte. So learn more at aloha.agency. That's A-L-O-A dot agency. So you mentioned that you at an early age, so, you know, you had maybe NIMBY from Anaheim Hills to MGB to in my grandma's backyard in <laughs> East Los <laughs> Angeles, uh, and you saw that difference. So you obviously committed yourself in a career point of view to these ideals from a very young age. So what made you decide to start getting actively involved in solving some of these issues? And what was the first step that you took? Um, you know, that's uh, that's a really interesting question. I've I've really paused and reflected on this over the years. You know, how did I get here? Uh, and it wasn't just recognizing my privilege or, you know, seeing the disparities between different communities, just e even, you know, 50 miles away. Um, for me, so I was uh, an athlete my entire oh. life. Um wow. 
I, I started very young and, you know, became a very competitive athlete. I played volleyball, um, okay. in high school. And, uh, that was, that was a huge, huge part of my life. I, I think that if you were to ask anyone in my immediate circle to describe me in one word, I think 90% of them would use the word competitive. Um, and okay. I'm okay with that. <laughs> I'm okay with that. Um, so, you know, I, I played competitive sports in my youth and, you know, as I was getting ready to graduate my senior year in high school, I had, I had an unfortunate, uh, situation with, with my high school, uh, varsity team, um, that led me to really pause and reflect and ask myself, you know, how did this happen? Um, you know, I ended up kind of giving up sports for many years after that, which was the antithesis of who I thought I was as a person. It was such a huge part of my, part of my identity. And it made me actually curious. I wanted to understand what happened. So I decided to pursue, you know, the study of psychology in college. And that I, I didn't think that was going to be my path as a, as a child. I wanted to be a heart doctor. I want to be a cardiologist. So it was a completely different trajectory for me. Um, and in my studies, I just, I felt so, so connected to it. Um, and I did some volunteer work with a young boy who had autism and, you know, even though I was working with just one person, the opportunity to give back and to see progress and to connect, um, with this young boy, all with the purpose of his growth, um, it, it changed me, you know, it was, it was a pivotal moment for me. Um, and so that's essentially kind of how I made the decision. All right, this is, this is what I want to do. I want to find a, a way to give back. I want to find a way to connect with people and make sure that everyone has the same opportunities that I have been given. So, you know, I, that's how I ended up at St. Anne's, you know, working in the group home. I didn't even know what group homes were, um, when I started there, I was like, oh, okay, you know, this sounds really interesting. They're obviously in the foster care system. I knew that the foster care system existed, but I really had, you know, in my early 20s, I had no idea the depth and the, the complexity of the foster care, the child welfare system, especially in Los Angeles County. Mm-hmm. So my path has been kind of fascinating. It started with, you know, sports and competition and, you know, being a part of a team and trying to figure out, you know, how, how did I get here? You know, I spent, you know, my entire life working towards this goal. And now it's not something that I see myself doing anymore. How did this happen? And how did it happen so abruptly? So in, in my journey to understand it, that's where I found the connection and I found the the purpose, um, uh, that has led me to where I am today. That's what an amazing story. I, I love that. Um, do you feel that sense of purpose on a daily basis? We just talked about gratitude and getting through times when times are not so great. Do you feel that having a mission versus a job has materially changed your life? Does it help you get through the, the tough times easier? A hundred percent. One hundred percent. I feel a sense of purpose each and every day. And don't get me wrong, Russ, there are days that I struggle. There are days that I'm very, very challenged um, you know, just the sense of responsibility that I, I, I put sometimes on myself. Um, mm. but knowing that I'm part of something bigger and that the, my why is, is these kids, it's these families, it's seeing them and knowing that even in my role, I'm not working directly with them, but even in my role, I can play a small part in them, you know, 
creating a safe and and thriving uh, world for themselves and their children that it, it's so meaningful to me. Um, and it's interesting that you asked that question because, you know, I have friends and families that family members that do very different work than me. In fact, most of them are in completely different industries than I am. They're accountants, they're attorneys, they're designers, they're artists. Um, and they have, they have their sense of person uh, purpose. They have their passion. Um, but for me, it's like, I, I'm not the kind of person that I can just clock in and clock out when I'm here. And even when I'm not here, I am 100% invested in, in the outcomes of not just the people that we serve, but the people that are doing the work. Um, because at the end of the day, we can't be doing this work without our incredible teams, without our incredible staff members. They show up each and every day to provide therapy, to provide crisis management, to support these families in their homes. Um, and that's such, such important work. That's the core of what we do. I think having a sense of purpose is it's so, so important. And especially, you know, through the pandemic, as all of us were just what is happening? Like, there is not one person that I know um, that was like, OK, this is good. You know, I, I see where this is going. And, you know, it's all going to be fine. No, yeah. it was like, what is going on? There was so much uncertainty. There were so many question marks. And, you know, obviously so much information that's being thrown at us at a daily basis um, that there was just this sense of internal panic and and carrying that for an extended period of time to, can do a lot of damage um, and really make you question, you know, am I what am I doing and is this worth it? Um, for me, the pandemic was an incredibly, incredibly difficult uh, period of time career wise. Because not only was I responsible for my own family and keeping my children safe and keeping myself safe and concerned about my parents and grandparents and how they're doing and how we can make sure that they're they're safe and healthy, you know, I felt this incredible sense of responsibility for our families because at the end of the at the end of the day, the pandemic, you know, disproportionately impacted, you know, families that are in in impoverished communities, uh, communities of color. And that, that's the communities that we serve. So while it was incredibly difficult for me, that's what kept me going back to work every day because I had that sense of purpose. I had that mission. What a beautiful thing. Yeah, I completely understand. Uh, now that you've switched roles a little bit, now you're yeah. CEO of a nonprofit. What is it like to be the CEO of a nonprofit? What's the day to day? Oh. The day-to-day, -day, I mean, every day is different. Today, I'm with you, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're like, well, normally I do good things. Today is a wild deviation from what I'm supposed to be yeah, doing. This is like, this normally, is my great... work brings me joy. <laughs> this is a great bookmark to my week. Uh, and I, I will say that I, I really enjoy it. I This organization, like I said, is doing, it's doing critical work in our communities. So it's been... A, for me, a relatively easy transition. It's easy to come to this organization and really fall in love with it. It's got such rich history and it's doing the work in this community. So that has been easy for me, you know, because I've just moved to another mission driven organization that has a mission that is so near and dear to my heart, working with these families, working with mothers um, and their children. Um, but it is different. You know, I have I have the opportunity to meet with a lot of people each and every day who want to learn about Aviva, who are interested in supporting Aviva. So my role is really just helping them, helping them connect with us, learn more about us, um, and then supporting 
all of our teams, you know, at my last organization, I was mainly over our programs and services, but now I have the opportunity to work closely with our financial department, to work with our, um, our quality improvement department, to work with our human resources department. So I'm in, I'm in a seat where I get to see how all of the pieces fit together. Um, and I get to be the person that kind of, uh, creates that sense of direction, um, and that's a really exciting yeah. place for me to be. Um, and I'm also very grateful and fortunate to have a team that is really enthusiastic. Um, they're so passionate and so hardworking, each and every one of them. And um, really, the I'm only as good as my team. And so that's that's an exciting thing for me is to be able to build my team and support them in, in each of their endeavors um, and supporting each and every department that essentially supports the organization and supports our families. So that's wonderful. We know that these things, and there, there have been many different discussions on what to do. Some people say bulldoze all of the golf courses, put up low-income housing, et cetera. I personally love playing golf, so that one stings a bit. But if it has to happen, <laughs> it has to happen. Uh, I'll, I'll accept it <laughs> if we need to. I, um, I will say this, Ross. I do enjoy a round of golf every now and then. I'm not hey. very good, so. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but I do Especially enjoy because the municipal golf. courses in L.A. are amazing. <laughs> they're incredible, and they're not that expensive. Uh but yeah, we, 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 so we know that these things cost money. And like we talked about, we're not quite sure what the best way to handle these problems. Where should the money come from? So when it comes to an organization like Aviva, obviously you must incur significant expenses in running the, the house and, and, and supporting all of these families. So what is the financial structure that allows Aviva to operate? Is it donations? How is this happening? That's a really good question. So um, in total, about between 85 and 90% of our budget comes from government contracts. So we have contracts with Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health, with the Department of Children and Family Services. We also have a contract with an organization called People Assisting the Homeless, or PATH. Um, that organization is what essentially funds our Wallace House Interim Supportive Housing Program. Um, unfortunately, and this is the case with most government contracts, those funds do not cover the full cost of care, um, certainly not the full cost of care based on the type of quality of service that we want to provide our families. So that is where our fundraising efforts uh, come in. So about 10% of our budget comes from fundraising, from investments, from uh, individual donors, from foundations. Um, so a lot of my work also ties to that too. It's getting the word out so that we can make sure that we're getting the support that we need to fill that gap so that we can provide not just the bare minimum, not, not the basic services that our families need. They need, they need more and they deserve no, they deserve more, frankly. Um, and that's really kind of where, uh, where all of it kind of comes together. Um, we spend a lot of time uh, getting to know individual donors and hearing, you know, what their interests are and, you know, sharing with them our mission and getting them excited about what we do because we're doing some really great stuff here in Hollywood. That's undeniable. All right. On a personal note, are you optimistic about the future or pessimistic and why? I'm certainly optimistic. I am hopeful each and every day. I don't think any of us could be in this line of work if we, if we didn't stay hopeful. Um, I think that there are certainly challenges and barriers, but 
you know, I've seen some remarkable things happen in my career with different organizations coming together to create change um, and create efforts that essentially are helping to give our families a, a, a leg up and to create a sense of equity and to create a sense of community and create a sense of value for each person that we're working in support of. So I, I stay as hopeful as I can. That's how I get out of bed every day. That's how I sleep at night. Uh, I, I I don't think that I, I could be in this work if I, you know, had a sense of doom um, every single day. We're all hopeful. And I think part of that, Ross, honestly, is because I have seen tremendous, tremendous work. I have seen families that have overcome, you know, incredible circumstances, circumstances that, you know, it would be hard for you to believe, but they, they prevail. They, they're able to overcome because of their, their adversity. They're, they're so strong and um, it's inspirational each and every day. So that's what I stay close to. That is my why is seeing that the work that we're doing matters. It is making a difference. Um, so that's going back to hearing those stories. That's why I think it's so important because it grounds us. It grounds us to the mission. It grounds us to the work. Um, so I think that for me, I try to stay focused on my why, um, even when the going gets tough. Well, all jokes aside, that is absolutely beautiful. And there is a reason you're on this show. It's not just a constant peppering of sarcasm. Uh, it's just like, geez, come on, give it a rest. Uh, it's that's it's it's beautiful. Um, and I knew the moment that I learned about your organization that it was something that I wanted to feature. I'm very glad to have this opportunity to speak to you. Uh, if If things go well in the next five or 10 years, what do you think the most realistic best outcome from your point of view would be to five to 10 years of success? For the organization or for the community at large? I suppose either, however you interpret that. You know, for for this organization, I think that um, if we continue on tra the trajectory that we're on, you know, we will be able to extend our reach and to grow our programs and services to serve even more members of our community. I think that will play a part in breaking down barriers and enhancing access to care. Um, and I think that that will be possible as long as we continue to build upon the partnerships that we have created here in, in Hollywood, you know, working closely with Hollywood Forward, working closely with the Hollywood Food Coalition, Hollywood Partnership, working, you know, continuing to our partnership with the Department of Mental Health um, and really being an advocate. But I think it's going to take work. It's going to take a lot of intentionality. We have to be really thoughtful and strategic with how we are addressing each each area that we come up against. Um, but I'm, I'm hopeful that we will see through our growth a decrease in the unhoused population. You know, we're really focusing on women and families, and that is the most disproportionately affected uh, community when it comes to the unhoused population. So I think continuing to focus on those areas that need additional supports, services and supports. Um, I think also continue to increase our efforts around substance use uh, support, um, SUD, and um, and again, it's all about increasing access to care. I think that's probably one of the largest barriers that we see. It's just really tough to access care. And um, there's so much there's so much red tape 
right? So how can we make just make it easier for folks to get services? And on top of that, you know, I think a lot of work has been done to address the, the stigma that has existed for many years around mental health, mental health disorders, you know, going to therapy. I think that we've made a lot of progress there. You know, I think even just 10, 15 years ago, um, it, it felt different to talk about going yeah. to therapy or asking for help. So I think that we have to continue with that work. I don't think we're done yet, um, but just continuing to educate, you know, everyone and starting starting early, uh, making sure there's access, better access to quality mental health support in schools, uh, making sure that our teachers have the support they need to address those issues in the classroom, um, because I, our teachers are really sometimes are the frontline support, right? They're the ones that are seeing some of the the um, the behaviors in the classrooms that are usually indicators of something much bigger, right? Something, you know, like trauma in the home or, you know, something else much more serious that might be going on. So making sure that we're supporting our teachers and giving them the supports and the resources so they can do their work. They continue to educate our, our young people, but also recognize when something is going on and they can link those kids to the care that they actually need. So continuing to work around education and just getting rid of that stigma. It's okay to ask for help. I love it. I love every single part of it. Um, just want to say, you know, keep doing what you're doing. The world is a better place for having people like you in it and also the organization. Uh, it's incredibly rare, but incredibly powerful to come across somebody who has committed themselves in the way that you have. And uh, it's certainly a great reset for me personally just to be reminded again, we talk about doom and gloom all the time, but to be reminded that there are really good people out there who have their hearts and minds in the right place. And clearly you are a shining example of that. And I look forward to you being able to achieve all of your goals and more in the next five to 10 years. So keep on rocking. If, if nothing else, you know, this is just a little rah, rah, <laughs> good job. moment. <laughs> if I can <laughs> give you a trophy. It. Here, here you go. Here's a trophy. Uh, I'll, I'll work on that. Next when we get a budget eventually for this, I'll have a trophy um, that I can get out. <laughs> It'll be years away. <laughs> Maybe a little plastic something will arrive at your door. Um, to, to wrap things up, could you, is it ridiculous to ask if you could distill? What do you, Could you distill your life philosophy into 30 seconds? Is that possible? What would that be? My life philosophy into 30 seconds. I think it's, stay true to yourself, be kind to yourself, be kind to others, um, and uh, drink lots of water. That's good. Yeah. And if somebody with the last name of Hamburger ever offers to help you out, you take it. <laughs> you take it. No I jokes. Agree. No jokes. Just serious. Uh, thank you again, Amber. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, Likewise. And with that, the official podcast is over. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Beat the Often Path podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes we've shared, it would mean a great deal to me if you subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice or on YouTube. And of course, if you shared either the show itself or this particular episode with somebody who might want to hear it to help us grow the audience for the show, I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. So if you've been a passive listener all this time, I get it. I understand. There's no big deal with that. But it would really, really mean a lot to me if you'd leave a positive review and help me grow this show. So thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.